Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Eleonora Mattiacci. Today, I'm here with Adam Dean, author of Opening Up by Cracking Down, Labor Repression and Trade Liberalization in Democratic Developing Countries. The book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022 in the series Political Economy and International Institutions. Welcome, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a bit about yourself. I'm an associate professor in the political science department at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and my research generally focuses on labor politics and the political economy of international trade. Why did you decide to write this book? So the book looks at the question of really the process of globalization, uh, and specifically focusing on developing countries and their decisions to open up their economies in the late 20th century. This is a wave of uh, what we call trade liberalization, a lowering of tariffs and other trade barriers uh, that that really enabled developing countries to join uh, an open global trading system. And for me, what was so interesting about this question was that it was sort of dominated by what you could sort of call a, a Whiggish neoliberalism. Whiggish in the sense that it overlooked any kind of conflict in the building of that system, and neoliberal in the sense that it saw trade liberalization and democracy as these really beneficial things that went together seamlessly. Um, what I thought was missing uh, from that debate uh, was the role of labor unions, which I had known uh, early on uh, had been very opposed to that process. They'd been very opposed to trade liberalization. Unions in developing countries were strongest in these what are called import competing industries. So the steel industries, textile industries, auto industries, industries that weren't going to be competitive once their countries opened up. And I knew that unions in those industries had really strongly opposed these reforms, this sort of move towards free trade. So I was really interested in trying to figure out how this all happened, right? How was it that a set of reforms that were opposed by labor unions ended up uh, being implemented through a process that should have given them more voice, right? So there was this move towards democracy. uh, And democracies, in many ways, can empower labor unions, right? The right to vote, uh, the right to free association, right to assembly, the right to collective bargaining and striking. These are all things that usually go with or can go with democratization, that should have enabled unions. And yet uh, the reforms that they opposed were implemented all over the world. So I really wanted to better understand that process. What's your argument in the book? So the argument is that what's missing from that story was rampant labor repression used by democratic governments. So at the same time that countries were becoming more and more democratic, they simultaneously, many of them, 
use labor repression. So the violation of really basic labor rights, the right to strike, the right to organize uh, in order to silence those labor unions. Right. So you had unions that were opposed to free trade or trade liberalization. You had democratic governments that were pushing to open their economies. And it turns out, looking back, that their ability to actually implement those reforms was really dependent on how much labor repression they were willing and able to use. And so the more repression the governments used, the more and the, the more they opened and the more quickly they did so. And the more countries respected workers' rights to organize and strike, the more they maintained uh, high tariffs and, and relatively protectionist policies. What kind of evidence do you use to support your argument? So I've always used a mix of both quantitative and qualitative uh, methods in my research. And so this book uh, does the same. Uh, I start off by uh, just sort of generally revisiting some of the quantitative evidence that's been used uh, in previous research to argue that there was this sort of symbiotic relationship between democratization and trade liberalization, specifically arguing that the more developing countries became democratic or the more democratic they became, the lower their tariffs went. And that certainly shows up in the cross-national quantitative data. So I started off uh, with that, sort of replicating those findings, and then just simply adding in um, a measure of respect for workers' rights. Like what happens in democracies that respect workers' rights versus democracies that are repressing unions and, and violating workers' rights? And you see a very different situation, a very different dynamic. In democracies that protected workers' rights, the, there's really no relationship with uh, tariff levels. That is, countries became more democratic and maintained the tariffs that they had if they were respecting workers' rights. It's only in the cases where uh, countries became increasingly democratic and repressed labor unions that we actually see opening. Right. So right off the bat, quantitatively, you see that this dynamic, this relationship that people had, uh, had assumed between democracy and trade policy was really dependent on how workers' rights were being dealt with, right? It's only where they're being repressed, where you get democratization leading to trade liberalization. So I start off with that just to sort of show that there's this general dynamic going on between these three major sort of concepts, right? Democracy, how democratic a country is, its level of trade protection or its level of tariffs, and its level of respect for workers' rights. The question, though, is like, how are those actually connected in terms of causal mechanisms? Like, what's really going on here? What is it about labor repression? that would lead to democratization to lead to a lowering of tariffs. And that's where all the qualitative case studies come in to really uh, illustrate uh, and test some of those causal mechanisms. So then I looked really closely, um, uh, most in depth at India and Argentina, uh, a lot of archival research uh, on both countries, uh, both in the United States and in Argentina, and then a, a field work trip to Argentina um, to also do some interviews with old labor union leaders from the 1980s and 1990s. And in those cases, it's it's basically like storing, storytelling labor history. It's just sort of like documenting a revisionist history of what I think really happened in these countries, cases where uh, unions were very vehemently opposed to trade liberalization uh, and, and really sort of shocking amounts of labor repression were used to silence them, to overcome their opposition in this process of economic liberalization. Um, and, and I'm happy to talk more about some of those shocking instances that have been completely forgotten, uh, not only from the sort of mainstream international political economy literature, 
uh, but also from from broader comparative politics um, and even area spe- uh, specialists on these cases of Argentina and India are just silent on the repression that was used. His invitation is too good to pass on. Could you tell us more about these shocking instances? Yeah, so so the book opens with a car bomb, uh, the explosion of the car of Saul Ubalini, who is the head of the main labor union confederation in Argentina. And, and Ubaldini and his union, the Union Federation, had been this really dominant force in Argentine politics, very clearly opposed to economic liberalization, both privatization of the public sector, but also trade liberalization, opening up of Argentina's industries to global competition. And when Carlos Menem uh, became president, he recognized very quickly that if he was going to try to implement those kinds of neoliberal reforms, that the union and specifically Ubaldini were going to be a major obstacle. And so the chapter in my book goes over uh, this really um, detailed strategic campaign of labor repression that Menem orchestrated with the rest of his cabinet to slowly weaken and divide and ultimately overcome the opposition of, of what's known as the CGT, the, the main labor union confederation in Argentina. They, it's not just the car bomb. It's, um, it's withholding funds from unions that opposed uh, government policy. It's replacing unilaterally replacing union leaders if they're on the wrong side of the government, um, firing workers that went on strike, declaring strikes to be illegal, um, all sorts of all sorts of horrible uh, acts of labor repression. Um, so that's in Argentina. And if you'd like to know more about India, I'd be happy to talk about that, too. Please. <laughs> so so in India, uh Scholars are very familiar uh, with uh, 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 Prime Minister Narasimha Rao, uh, the, the democratic leader of India, who in the early 1990s implemented uh, what's known as the New Economic Policy, a set of economic reforms, again, including privatization and trade liberalization. They really uh, liberalized and opened up the Indian economy. Uh, what people don't know about or didn't know about uh, was that the process through which Rao implemented those reforms, uh, required uh, really shocking levels of labor repression. So in the early days of those reforms, uh, the labor unions uh, in India announced plans for a general strike, uh, which in India is like a one-day sort of symbolic political strike aimed at um, expressing their their discontent with government policy. And Rao is very concerned uh, when when that strike is announced. Uh, because one of his predecessors in the 1980s, Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi, had also tried to implement neoliberal reforms and backed down in the face of widespread uh, labor unrest and general strikes. Right, so there's this clear background that Rao has in mind that in the past, efforts to open up have been blocked by general strikes from unions. So when the unions announced plans for general strike, Rao takes it very seriously in the early 1990s. And he goes to meet with the unions or he sends a labor minister to meet with the unions. And he says, look, you know, I want you to call off the general strike. We'll always consult with unions and we'll never do anything that hurts Indian workers. And one union that was affiliated with his political party agrees and declares that this is some kind of victory that now they have this consultation mechanism. But the rest of the unions, which which represent the majority of, of labor union members in India at the time, say no. They say like, you know, we're just a week from the general strike. We're going forward with it. And so the, the, the strike goes forward. And then six months later, 
they announce a second general strike. Now, at this point, Narasimha Rao recognizes that offers of consultation and sort of like fringe compensation aren't going aren't gonna to do it. And so uh, a week before the second general strike, Rao, uh, Rao's government, in, in coordination with the chief ministers of different states of India, so sort of like the U.S. equivalent of governors, uh, start to use what's known as um, preventive arrest. Uh, Eleonora Matiachi, do you know what the power of preventive arrest is in India? I, I am eager to learn more about it. <laughs> so it's uh, a Commonwealth tradition that India inherited from British colonialism and is in the Indian constitution from the 1940s, which gives the government the right to arrest people that are going to commit crimes. Not, bef- not after they've committed the crime, but you- you're allowed to preventively arrest them and detain them because you know in the future that they will commit crimes. And so uh, what ends up happening in the week before the second general strike is that the Indian government arrests 25,000 union members throughout India, predominantly in the southern state of Tamil Nadu, but, but, but throughout the country. 25,000 union members are held in prison without charges for a week until the general strike is over and then they're released back into the population without any charges uh, being um, without any charges, without facing any charges. And so what the government was trying to do here was to stop them from picketing. Picketing during a, a strike is when workers surround a workplace or in this case, a transportation hub like a bus station or a train station and try to shut down that factory or that or that transportation hub. Uh, and so so in this case, what was going on is that bus drivers and, and railroad workers shut down the transportation system in Indian cities during a general strike, uh, stopping anybody from going to work. And in the background here is a debate between the union and the government about how big these strikes are. And specifically, since it's the second general strike, are the strikes getting bigger or smaller? So these things on the margin of arresting 25,000 people, not that it's marginal, but arresting 25,000 people, stopping them from picketing and spreading the strike, gave the government the best chance it had of making sure that this strike was smaller than the previous strike so that they could claim that their uh, reforms were getting momentum and the unions were really out of touch. Um, So these kinds of of things that are just left out of the narrative, you know, that sure, sometimes you'll see in a footnote in a book on Indian reform, there were four general strikes against these reforms as as a small footnote. But the question of how they were overcome, especially when compared to the general strikes in the 80s, which were respected. The government allowed those strikes to take place without any kind of repression like this. Uh, the comparison is really stark, right? It was it was the 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 choice to repress unions, to repress these general strikes that weakened the general strikes and allowed for the implementation of these reforms. And yet the story had been told over and over again uh, in various ways, the genius of Narasimha Rao, the economic crises that made reform inevitable, all these different arguments. And people over and over again have just ignored the fact that there was this major organized group that opposed the reforms that had previously demonstrated their clear ability to block them. And then they lose. And there's no one who no one looks to check. Well, how did these how did these unions lose? Maybe they were repressed. And sure enough, there's there's really um, widespread evidence that that was the case and that it played a really important role in overcoming their opposition, just like it had in Argentina, and I show throughout the book, really throughout developing countries in the late 20th century. Wow, thank you. Thank you. I do do want to go back um, to the Argentina chapter a bit. The amount and diversity of the sources you use is impressive. 
I was hoping you could describe for us uh, what the process of piecing together uh, what happened from multiple sources was like. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for that that question. Um, I'm lucky enough to live and work in Washington, D.C., uh, where we have, to my knowledge, the best collection of uh, newspapers from around the world uh, here at the Library of Congress. Um, and so before going to do field work in Argentina, I spent the better part of a year going to the Library of Congress and looking at old Argentine newspapers on microphone, uh, both in English and in Spanish, and uh, also using other sources online, the secondary literature, but really piecing together um, sort of like the the play-by-play um, steps of Argentine labor unions opposition and how the government responded. Now, because of these kinds of events, these general strikes, these instances of, repre- of repression are systematically left out of the literature on these questions, uh, the onus was really on me to dig deep uh, to try to find uh, these parts of the story, which I, you know, I sort of deductively thought would be there, uh, but had to do the research to to really see what happened. And so that's sort of like it's a it's a back and forth inductive process of like, you know, you can find sometimes that they mention a, a major strike, right? So you'll find a reference in the secondary literature of a major strike, and then you can go and read the newspaper accounts from various newspapers from you know across the political spectrum. Um, of what happened during those strikes and how the government responded. So there's a lot of that back and forth, sort of building out a timeline. And then I had the opportunity to go to Buenos Aires and to do field work uh, in Argentina, both in the archives um, at the labor union archives. They have amazing, you know, primary documents from the from the labor union's perspective that are, aren't aren't available anywhere else. Uh, and then also did a bunch of interviews uh, with people who were alive and active during the period I was studying in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And that was a really welcome change for me because my my first book actually looked at Argentine labor history in the early 20th century, as well as in in Britain and the United States, but but all all very historical, going back 100 years or more. Uh, And so to be able to talk to people who were uh, alive uh, in the 80s and 90s and politically active uh, was really uh, amazing for me. Um, And so that was a sort of back and forth. And then coming back from Argentina, and processing all of the interviews that I did, new archival documents. I then also was very lucky um, to have help during the fieldwork trip and, and also after from a, an Argentine research assistant uh, named uh, Rocio uh, Karababakian, who was really incredible and, and was able to continue sending me things from the archives in Argentina as we pieced together the story that I tell in the book. Well, the, it sounds like it was a lot of work and it really comes through in the book. It's an impressive, impressive amount of research. I have one more question. Uh, what questions do you hope this book will spur for future research? It's a great question. Um, I think that the field that I'm in of international political economy has often overlooked the important role that labor unions play uh, in various um, political situations. And I hope that this book leads people to take that role of unions more seriously, both in terms of the theoretical and descriptive accounts uh, that we make of the, of the world around us, 
but also in terms of the normative implications. So the story that I tell in the book is is a much darker and uh, fraught history than what I referred to before as a sort of like Whiggish neoliberalism, right? That the trade liberalization was great. It led to uh, higher wages and new jobs for workers throughout developing countries, raised the like growth rates, economic growth rates, and all these things. It just focuses on these positive aspects and argues using some models from economics that this was widely shared prosperity, right? That all workers in developing countries stood the kin from these reforms. So I think not only was that wrong in terms of theory and in terms of description, but but normatively, like the stories that we tell about the world and that we teach to our students, if they leave out the fact that hundreds of thousands, uh, in some cases, millions of workers were thrown out of work by these reforms, and that the unions, if they had them, if they were lucky enough to have a union to give them a voice, uh, not only in the economic realm, but in the political realm, that those unions were aware of those negative effects, fought to try to slow down or stop those reforms, and were ultimately defeated using repression, uh, then the normative implications of this process of globalization are much, much more difficult to make sense of, right? They're sort of like uh, just a more complicated situation. Now, I think that some people who read the book uh, like to pigeonhole my argument and say that, well, you know, they still believe that free trade and uh, trade liberalization was good for the, the general public, for the majority, and that I'm just sort of fixated on documenting the costs on this small segment of workers. And sure enough, unions in developing countries were almost always, if not always, a minority of, of the working class. Uh, to which, To which I say, you know, I just want an honest accounting of what happened, right? If if people ultimately decide the trade liberalization had such positive economic effects uh, that it outweighs the negative consequences or negative implications of the labor repression that was used to implement those reforms, then that's fine. People are, are welcome to have their own worldviews. Uh, what I didn't like was the idea that we could have this debate ignoring all of the negative effects on those who were so... Um, who sort of negatively impacted. So I hope that that it leads to a more honest uh, debate about uh, globalization and its underlying political dynamics. That sounds, that sounds great. One more question. What is one thing that surprised you as you researched your book? I think the most surprising thing for me was talking to some labor union leaders in Argentina who, when I first asked them about it, claim to have no memory of the car bomb that opens the book. Um, wow. And, and, and the explanation they gave uh, for why they didn't remember. So to give you just a little bit of, of background. So again, this is the, the car uh, of Saul Ubaldini, the head of the, the, the Labor Union Confederation Argentina. So like the equivalent of the AFL-CIO here in the US. And although Ubaldini passed away, uh, in the early 2000s, I had, I had the fortune of, of meeting and working with his son, who was also named Saul Ubaldini in Buenos Aires. And so he helped me connect with some of his father's old friends in the labor union movement, including Ubaldini's chauffeur and bodyguard who had parked the car the night that the car bomb went off. And so I got this firsthand account of the night of that attack, uh, who he thought was responsible, who Ubaldini had blamed originally. Um, and 
And I also spoke with the union's main labor lawyer, uh, all of which talked about, you know, what happened that night, the filing of the police report, the government's refusal to investigate what had happened, all these different things. Uh, it's on the front page of the newspapers in Argentina. It's all very clear that this happened. And at the time was like a major, um, you know, uh, pardon the, the pun, but an explosive moment in, in Argentine politics at that time. Um, and so I was really surprised when I sat down with with some labor union leaders who said they didn't remember. Um, and when I showed them, I had like the scanned uh, newspaper article from the Library of Congress on my laptop. So I showed them, you know, this is what I'm talking about. Look, it's the front page of La Nación, this major newspaper. Like, here it is, it ha- you know. Uh, and then they would say like, oh, you know, like, OK, I guess I remember. And they were sort of reticent to talk about it. And then I said, you know, like, why, you know, why do you think? You didn't remember this. And they said, well, it was a time, it was a violent time in Argentina where there were car bombs and attacks like that happening all the time. And so I guess I forgot one. And what was so interesting to me about that is that it's demonstrably incorrect that uh, the late 80s and early 90s was was not a a particularly violent time in Argentina. They're six years into the uh, transition to democracy. This is not like the dirty war years of the military junta in the 70s and early 80s. And the actual newspaper coverage of the bombing the next day is to say, you know, things have been so tranquil, we worry that this is a return of the violence of the past, right? So it's simply not the case that it was a violent time where one more car bomb would be forgotten. And, you know, I there were other people I spoke with also who, who had forgotten this event. And so that was one of the more challenging and interesting things to, for me. I'm a sort of like classical historical materialist when it comes to political economy. And so like interpreting historical memory and the way that it's formed and the way that it's used moving forward is a little bit above my pay grade and something that I, I don't really uh, claim to understand in full. But but as a as a researcher there on the ground trying to understand you know, this event that seemed like a, a major important event to me, I uh, was clearly seen as a major important event at the time, uh, but then had been forgotten, at least by some uh, labor union leaders decades later was was really fascinating to me. That must have been pretty surprising, I have to say. Um, so we've taken um, enough of your time. I want to ask one final question. What are you working on right now? So I'm currently working on a project that looks at a, a sort of different angle at the same question, which is why developing countries opened up their economies in the late 20th century. And instead of focusing on this domestic dynamic, which I, I obviously think was was very important, the sort of use of labor repression by democratic governments, um, this, this other project looks at the effect of U.S. pressure. Um, so the United States... Uh, in the late 20th century, especially in the early 80s, uh, starts to run trade deficits for the first time. So it's it's importing more than it's exporting. And it's starting to get very worried about, about this growing uh, trade imbalance and starts to pressure, especially developing countries, to open up their economies so the U.S. can export more easily to those countries to, tri- to close this trade deficit. Um, and so... Uh, I've been working on that with with two co-authors, a graduate student of ours at, at GW named Hannah Sworn and Ken Shadlin, who's a professor at the London School of Economics, who was actually one of my old advisors when I was a, a grad student there for a year. 
Uh, and we, we show using a uh, causal inference uh, approach called difference and differences that the onset of U.S. pressure had a massive impact on not only tariff levels in developing countries, so countries are lowering their tariffs after U.S. pressure, but they're also increasing their imports specifically from the United States, right? So the, the U.S. is pressuring them to open up so that they can import more goods from the U.S. and that they lower their tariffs and they start to import more. Uh, and we see these really um, interesting effects that, that are a good reminder, right? I spent all this time in the book focused on domestic politics, but obviously uh, these dynamics are situated in a broader sort of global structure or global system where international factors like pressure from the U.S. also matter for understanding what happened. It sounds like a, a great project that naturally follows the one you talk you talked about uh, today. So we look forward to having you back um, to tell us all about it. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for talking to us today. My guest has been Adam D. His new book is Opening Up by Cracking Down, Labor Repression and Trade Liberalization in Democratic Developing Countries. The book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022 in the series Political Economy and International Institutions. I'm your host, Eleonora Mattiacci. Until next time.